All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome, LifePoint family. It's good to see uh, you each week, guests. Uh, grateful to have you here with us. If it is your first time here, just want to point you to the QR code in front of you. That's going to take you to this uh, resource right here, lpguest.com. So you can use the QR code or you can just type that into a web browser. That's got the message notes for this morning. So all the scripture passages and the notes that will be on the screens. And if you're using the LifePoint Ohio app on the notes section, everything that's there, guests, that's there for you as well, just to help orient you for the morning. There's also a guest information card there if you wouldn't mind taking takes about two minutes to fill out. We would love for you to fill that out, give us a chance to connect with you not only in person, hopefully, but also digitally as well. That would be uh, fantastic. Um, Also, on your way out this morning, there are two uh, white Christmas trees. It's, it's, we're to that season already. Uh, my house was decorated a week ago, so really crushing it, right? Uh, we actually had, I had to lead my kids through like, let's apologize to Thanksgiving, right? We just uh, totally skipped over Thanksgiving. But uh, there are two white Christmas trees out there with a little QR code by that. So that is our blessing uh, tree. So every year we try to take the opportunity to bless single parents in our church. We know single parents, right? You're often doing the job of two as, as one, and that's difficult. And so we want to just bless Uh, financially those parents this year, give them a gift. And so here's what I'm going to ask. If you know of single parents who are members or regular attenders here at our church, we do a lot of outreach. We do a lot of things outside of our church body. This is one of the few things in a year that we do sort of inside of the, the church family. So if you know of a single parent in our church family, uh, you can uh, let us know by using that QR code. We're not asking you to give towards that from our generosity throughout the year. We will uh, pay for that. But if you'd let us know, if you know of someone we've missed, that would be super helpful. So just use the QR code and uh, and let us know. And then also, I mentioned last week, there's a life team orientation going on in the meeting room at 1045 today. Um, That's learning how to serve here at LifePoint. I mentioned last week we had 230 folks back in LifePoint Kids between kids and uh, life team members serving, about 180 some kids and 45 leaders, right? We had even more last week. And so uh, just a reminder that we have a real, a real privilege in uh, getting to shepherd, help shepherd the next generation. And so we, we need folks to step onto that team. There are 150 people that serve on that team, and we'd love to see that increase as we serve the increasing number of kids that God has given to us. So if you forgot to sign up for Life Team Orientation, you can just go. We'll make room for you at 1045. If you have kids in LifePoint Kids, if they're in Littles, they can just stay in their environment for the extra service. If they're juniors or above, go back and take them to the double up room, and will be there waiting for you, smiling, so happy that you brought them, right? Because she knows you're going to Life Team Orientation, right? To learn about serving. So um, we would love for you to be there at 1045 in the meeting room, all right? We are in Daniel 4 today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. We started a series a few weeks ago calling, that we're calling Exiles. We're looking at the life of Daniel and, and sometimes his three friends in the first six chapters or so of the book of Daniel. And the big idea is this, that faith is more about how you live than where you live. What we're trying to get at with that is that you can, you can live faithfully spiritually no matter where you live geographically. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, if I just lived over there where culturally it was more Christian, then it would be easier to be a believer. If I, if I lived back then, right, in the, in the 1950s when everything was awesome, right, uh, and, and those of you who lived through that, you're like, Kale, you know, there were problems then too, right? But sometimes we think that way. If I just lived back then or if I lived over there, it'd be easier to be faithful as a Christian. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. The point is God has placed you where you are, when you are, for a purpose. And you can live faithfully, spiritually, no matter where you live, chronologically or geographically. 
because faith is more about how you live than where you live or when you live. Now, by way of quick reminder, just the setting here. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king or the emperor of Babylon, he's the emperor of the greatest empire on earth. He's taken over. He takes over around 600 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, right? The kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom's already destroyed. Southern kingdom gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, by Babylon, destroys the temple, national disaster for the Jewish people, and he exiles many of the elite young men from uh, Judah and brings them to Babylon. It's part of his program where he takes sort of the best of the best and he takes them and re-educates them from a Babylonian worldview and puts them into his administration. We said uh, week one from Alistair Begg, his little book, Brave by Faith, gave a great summary, right? They were renamed, re-educated, relocated, right? They're stripped of their identities, given new Babylonian names. They're re-educated from a Babylonian worldview. And yet, they, and this is what's so instructive for us, they live faithfully in this culture that doesn't agree with anything that they believe, that's actually hostile in some ways to the things that they believe, and yet they live faithfully to the Lord and for the Lord in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of their culture. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 4. We've seen several things over the first few chapters once again, we come back to King Nebuchadnezzar here in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, now this is a, a statement from the king. He's going to start with where he is at this moment, and then he's going to go back and tell a story about how he got to this moment. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then he writes a little bit of a hymn in some ways, this poem. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if you've been with us for the first few weeks of this series, you know, and you're probably asking, what the world has happened to Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> Chapter one, right? He was bringing Daniel and his three friends before him, questioning them, made them learn all about astrology and the work of the magicians. Chapter two, right? And chapters three, he's already tried to kill Daniel once. Last chapter, he was building an enormous uh, idol to either himself or to one of his gods and says all his king, all his provincial uh, uh, government officials have to bow down to it. And then he tries to kill Daniel's three friends because they wouldn't bow down to it. And you're going, what the world has happened to Nebuchadnezzar that he's changed so much that now he's going, God is amazing. I just want to praise the Most High God. Well, we'll get there and we'll find out. But first, I want to point out something that it's, it's obvious, it's confronting us right here, but if you don't pause and think about it, you might miss it. And that is just this, that change is possible. Change is it's possible because with God, all things are possible. Think about what's happening here, right? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, the man who has tried to murder, Daniel, who's tried to say all the magicians are going to die because they can't tell him his dream. The man who has told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you guys are going to get thrown in the burning fiery furnace because you won't worship my idol is now saying God is amazing. You're going, what has happened here? Change is possible, and if we're honest, we so often sell God short. And I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone. We think things like, or we say things like, that person will never change. I will never change. This relationship or marriage will never change. My kids will never change. I can't imagine this thing turning around. I can't imagine that person is ever going to give their life to Christ. 
They're, so they're running the opposite direction. I just can't imagine them ever bending the knee and bowing to the Lord and giving him their life. And we say things like, I know God can because I'm supposed to say that. But when it comes to, as Wesley said, right, do we really trust that? <laughs> do we really open our hands to him and say, God, I know that you are, it's better that you're in charge of this than I am. And God, I know that change is possible. I'm not saying change isn't hard work. I'm not saying every situation will change or that every person will change. Change is a process. It's not usually just an event. It's a process that often takes a long time, but it is possible. God does change people and he changes situations. We just read the emperor of Babylon writing a chapter of the Bible. Think about that for a moment. That ought to stun us. We're about to read a whole chapter that's been written basically by the emperor of Babylon extolling how amazing God is. That's insane. But it's true. God does change people. When we open the pages of scripture, we see a God who governs empires, who raises them up and causes them to fall. A God who changes the hearts of kings and emperors. And we have to think to ourselves, maybe my God in my mind, is too small. Maybe my perception of who God is is too limited, and we have got to start saying, no, 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 that addiction is breakable. That sin is forgivable. That person is savable. That wound is healable. That mountain is movable. That valley is endurable. For those of us going, I'm never going to be able to get through this. Yes, you can. Why? Because God is eminently able and he is with you. He promises that. Change is possible because Jesus said, right, with God, all things are possible. Let's stop selling God short. Let's believe him for who he is and for what he can do. Now, We've seen that Nebuchadnezzar clearly has changed. What has happened that's brought this about? What happened that's causing Nebuchadnezzar to talk more about God than himself? Here's what happens. He tells us, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so now he's going back to what happened here. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace and I saw a dream that made me afraid. So what he does is he calls for the Chaldeans, the infamous Chaldeans. We've seen these guys over and over, his magicians and astrologers. You would think that he would have given up on them by this point in time. They're never useful. All throughout the book, they keep coming to him. He's like, tell me my dream and its interpretation. And then they never can. And yet he keeps going back to them. And so eventually they fail. And then he calls for Daniel. And Daniel once again comes. And he says this, oh, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name. Chief of the magicians. I always wonder if Daniel just got annoyed eventually listening to Nebuchadnezzar. Like, as he talks to him, he's like, chief of the magicians. If Daniel just sort of rolled his eyes, he's like, stop calling me that. And yet, Daniel's such a great picture of what it's like to serve with someone who, he just doesn't get it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. And yet, Daniel's so patient with him. So, pa so patient. We're going to see it. Serves, loves him. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. 
And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him, now here's where you ought to note, like, wait a second, him, not it. We're going to learn this here in a moment. This is about Nebuchadnezzar. He is the tree. He has grown, his empire grown to such great heights, and yet there's a judgment coming. Let him, let, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I want you to circle or underline verse 17 there. To the end, what's the purpose of this? To the end, to the purpose that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. We're gonna come back to that. Verse 18 says, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. He doesn't like what he hears. He knows where this is headed and he doesn't like it. The king answered him, noticing this, and says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Like I said, here in a moment, Daniel's going to tell, we're going to read it. He tells Nebuchadnezzar what the interpretation is, that he is the tree and he's going to call him to repentance. But I want you to pause here and think about something for a moment. The enormity of that moment. The fact that Daniel hears this and his response to that is, oh no. Like why? Th think about it. This is the man who destroyed Daniel's homeland. This is a man who, from an earthly perspective, ruined Daniel's life. He pulled Daniel from his home, from his home when he was a teenager, ripped him out of everything that was familiar to him. We saw in the early, another chapter, tried to kill Daniel and all the wise men. Last chapter, took Daniel's three friends and threw them into a burning, fiery furnace for not obeying him, not worshiping an idol. Daniel has every reason, from an earthly perspective, to hate this man. And yet, he serves him. Seemingly even, to some extent, loves him. When he gets this interpretation, he goes, this is not good for King Nebuchadnezzar. There's compassion there and this willingness to witness to him and to call him to repentance for God's glory and even for Nebuchadnezzar's good. Which leads me to ask this question. What's your attitude toward your enemies? What's my attitude toward my enemies? And I get it, right? You hear that and go, Kale, I don't have any enemies, right? I get it. We don't like using that term, right? None of us like looking at that person and going, 
that one, right? My arch nemesis. That's my enemy, right? It's too harsh a language for it. We don't like, so let me ask you differently. What's your attitude towards people you don't like? What's your attitude toward people who don't like you? What's your attitude? What's my attitude towards, how about this one? People that disagree with us politically or socially. What's our attitude toward people who have hurt us? What's our attitude towards the lost? Towards someone who is not a believer in Christ? Towards someone who completely, has a complete different set of values and opinions than we do, and beliefs? What's our attitude towards those people? When I was in, um, when I was in college, there were uh, two older guys, two upperclassmen, um, who, from what I understood, just didn't like each other that much, right? We were all runners on the team, and these two just didn't seem to get along. And uh, guy number one, right? Guy number one, guy number two. Guy number one was a better runner than guy number two, and, and he always, most of the time, beat guy number two in the races. But as the story goes, I wasn't there for this, but this is how the legend went, right? <clears throat> that one race, right, toward the end of the season, as these two came into the final shoot, right, heading towards the finish line, guy number one was just having a bad day, real bad running day. And he's sort of dying, you know, down the, the chute. And that's usually where, you know, if you come by your teammate, you see like, keep going, right? Well, guy number two passed him, right, beat him, maybe for the first time, passes him in the chute right towards the finish line. And as, excuse me, as the story goes, as guy number two passes guy number one, his teammate, he runs by and goes, ha! <laughs> as he passes him toward the finish line. I, for some reason, I always found that story hilarious in my head. And I, to be honest, kind of wish I were there for that moment. But as goofy as the story is, I think to myself, if we're honest, that is often our, my attitude and that is often our attitude towards people that we don't like, towards our enemies. When something bad happens to them, when we or our side, quote unquote, wins, our attitude is basically, ha, serves you right. You got what you deserved. I, I know I've done it. Anyone else willing to admit it, All right? Driven by the person who cuts you off and then they get pulled over and you're like, ha, right? <laughs> Serves you right. But let's, let's compare that to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I'll just read it to you. You've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. You go, Kill, really? Jesus, really love them? Pray for them? But Jesus, that what those people are doing, what they're advocating for, it's evil, it's wrong. Yes, it is, but listen to me. You can pray for someone and pray against the things that they're doing or standing for at the same time. This is not about, right? Should we stand up against injustice? Should we stand up and say, that, that's wrong? This is the truth. Yes, we should. But what we're talking about here is, yeah, but what's our attitude towards the people who are involved in that? Because you can say, I very much disagree. In fact, I hate the things you're advocating for. That's not true. That's evil. And yet, I don't hate you. Because I know if it were not for the grace of God, I'd be doing that same thing. 
Ha, if I can say it that way, is not a Christ-like attitude and it's not going to win anyone to Christ. It doesn't reflect the attitude and heart of our Lord and our Savior. Serves you right. Think about this, guys. There is a direct connection between our graciousness and our compassion towards those we disagree with or our lack thereof and our understanding of the gospel. When we're sitting there going, serves you right. You got what you deserved. We have to sit back and go, wait a second. I didn't get what I deserved. <laughs> Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there. The gospel tells us we didn't get what we deserved. Christ took it for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the gospel tells us, wait, wait, wait. You didn't get what you deserved. Christ took that in your place at the cross when he died for you and for me, when he rose again that we might have new life. We're forgiven. We're saved only by the grace of God. How could we not want that for someone else? How could we not look at those who oppose us and say, Lord, I don't like what they're advocating. But Father, I love them because I know you love them. You sent Christ for them. So God, help me to be gracious and compassionate and kind because that's what you were for me. Ha, <laughs> not a Christian attitude. We have to repent of it and ask forgiveness and say, Father, help me. Like Daniel, he exemplifies compassion towards someone with whom he disagrees. Daniel goes on to tell the king, the tree is you, you've grown great, but God, he's given you power and dominion, an empire, but judgment is coming. Verse 24, he says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you should be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. In other words, your kingdom can be restored and will be restored to you when you recognize who's actually in charge. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I'm going to come back to that, but what a courageous moment from Daniel. He stands before the king of Babylon. He's like, I've told you the inter... Now let me give you some advice. Turn away. Humble yourself, please. This is a man who regularly kills people who opposes him. But Nebuchadnezzar does not listen. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof. A year later, God lingers that long. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said this. He looks out over all of his accomplishments, over the hanging gardens, over the beautiful city and he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you 
and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There we see it again, until you know. That happens, verse 33, all that comes to pass. He loses his mind. And then at the end of the days, verse 34, after these seven periods of time, we're not sure exactly how long, likely seven years. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. But does he go back with the same pride as the kingdom given back to the same man? No, he's changed. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And then the point, perhaps, of the passage, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is given back to him, but he's a changed man, no longer walking in pride. All right, what do we take from this? There are multiple things, but I'm going to give us uh, two things and then a closing thought. One, One lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's life, one from Daniel's, and then one closing thought. Here's from Nebuchadnezzar's life. God humbles with a purpose. God humbles with a purpose. We saw it multiple, right? God is able to humble those who walk in pride. God humbles, but he does so with a purpose. We saw it three, four times over and over. Like, what's he doing with the humbling? Is he just humbling for giggles? Well, he looks prideful. Time to humble him. No. Verse 17, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar, that you might know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. What is God doing in humbling Nebuchadnezzar? I'll summarize it for you. I even made it rhyme. You're welcome. God brought him low so that he might know. Say it with me. God brought him low, so that he might know. You are welcome, all right? Why does he bring him low? Repeatedly, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, I am humbling you so that you might see me rightly and see yourself rightly. I'm humbling you, Nebuchadnezzar, so that the people around you, that all might know, who I am and be in right relationship with me. And listen, this is, you say, well, how does that apply to me? It's the same in your life and in mine. God works in this world. He works in your life and in my life, even through the painful. In fact, perhaps especially through the painful moments, through the valleys, through the humbling, through the suffering, so that we can come to a place where we see him rightly and see ourselves rightly, that we might know him. The reality is you can't know God and you can't have a right relationship with him when you are walking in pride. To come to Christ requires coming in humility, knowing, Lord, I have nothing to give, but you have everything to offer. 
The Proverbs tell us in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What does that mean? It means this. If you want to truly know anything in this life, if you want any measure of wisdom, it starts, it all starts in your life by you understanding and me understanding a foundational or fundamental truth about reality. And that is there is only one God and I am not him. There's only one God and you are not him. If you understand that, if we get that, fear him, know him, he's God, we are on the path toward wisdom and towards truly knowing. But as long as you are the center of your universe, as long as the world revolves around you and you're the most important thing in it, you can't truly know God or have right relationship with him. And God is able to humble those who walk in pride. So humble yourself. Rather than wait for that moment, right, where the pride comes before the fall, humble yourself today under God's mighty hand and know that even when God does humble, when he brings humiliation in a sense, it's with a purpose that you might know him, that others might know him and see him rightly, that we might see ourselves rightly. For some of you, that's the application today. Some of us I'd say it more gently if I could. You're Nebuchadnezzar. You have those moments where you look out over all the accomplishments of your life. Your wealth, retirement fund, career, achievements, house, property. And you, what wells up in you is not gratitude, but pride. Look at what my work, look at what my hard work has done. And listen, I'm not saying you haven't worked hard. I'm not saying it's wrong to be proud in a sense of an accomplishment. But what should well up in us is, God, thank you for the air I breathe, for the lungs with which I have to breathe that air. Thank you for everything. All good gifts come from you. Thank you for the career you've given me and the position you've given me for your glory and for my good. Thank you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. What should well up in us is gratitude. Don't leave God out of the equation. Give glory and praise and thanks to where and to whom it is due to the Lord. Learn the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. Humble yourself and recognize that even when God humbles, he does so with a purpose that we might know him. Second thing is this from Daniel's life, the power of a consistent and courageous witness. The power of a consistent and courageous witness. Guys, Daniel served in Babylon for 70 years. <laughs> I just want you to think about that for a moment. He serves under multiple administrations, under multiple kings. He serves Nebuchadnezzar most likely for 40 years. And he's just this picture of consistency, of faithfulness, of, and then being courageous when God gives him opportunities, obedient when God gives him opportunities. And, and many commentators of the Christian life have said this, right? We so often we don't share the gospel and we don't, we don't share, we don't invite because we're afraid. We think, man, what if it goes poorly? What if I share the gospel or I invite or I'm obedient in that moment and the other person doesn't respond well, especially in our culture. It's going to get awkward and they might not like me. And we have got to remember what God's role is and what our role is. Our role is just to be consistent, to be faithful. If you go share the gospel with someone, if you go invite someone to church and they go, no thanks, that is not a failure. You were faithful and you were obedient. That is success. And we have got to remember this, guys. We have got to remember that. 
to not walk. Think about, think about it. What if Nebuchadnezzar would have, or what if Daniel would have walked away from the scenario and been like, I failed. <laughs> I, I, I called him to repentance. 12 months later, here he is still standing on his rooftop talking about how awesome he is. It failed. That's not failure. Daniel was, he was consistent. He was faithful. He was obedient. Seven years most likely pass by before Daniel gets to see some of the fruit of that change. Decades most likely of serving, most likely praying for Nebuchadnezzar, taking the opportunities when he had them. Guys, sharing the gospel, inviting someone, praying for someone. This is why I've encouraged us. Let's pray for one person. Who's your one during this life group team where you're praying for them consistently, recognizing evangelism, sharing the gospel, being a witness. It's not usually just a one-time thing. It's a long, slow, months-long, decades-long sometimes process of just being there and being consistent and being faithful. I was reminded of this this week. <laughs> Two stories. One, I was listening to a pastor talking about how his dad came to faith and he said his dad in high school was a farmer, had a buddy, another farmer who would drive to his farm every Sunday. He came for Sunday. Hey man, you want to come to church with me? He said, my dad had no interest at all. No. So the guy came back the next week and then the next week and then the next week for 53 straight weeks. You want to come to church with me? By the 52nd week, he said, my dad was like, I have to go just to get him to stop driving to my farm, like to coming over here, right? Get this guy off my back. So 52nd week, I'll go with you. 53rd week, he goes and he hears the gospel for the very first time. He ends up giving his life to Christ, changes his life, his eternity, his family's life and direction. It reminded me of a story I heard a number of years ago about a church planter in our network, who a leader now in the network, and he said when his parents, this is back in the 50s or 60s, he said when my parents were young, they went to a movie theater, and the owner of the movie theater felt like the Lord had told him that he was to play a clip from Billy Graham before all the, you know, it was a private theater, before each movie, and he got up before every film, he played the clip, and then he would invite, does anyone want to give their life to Christ? And nobody raised their hand. He did it for weeks. Nobody raised their hand, felt like it was such a failure. But little did he know that this church planter's parents were in one of those shows, and after they finished their movie, they went into the parking lot, and they took each other's hands, and they prayed to give their lives to Christ and it changed their life and their family's life. And their son became a missionary and a church planter. And 50 years later, that church planter was sharing that story at a Billy Graham event where they were talking about how had that ministry impacted them. And he said, when I got done sharing, this old man in the back gets up and he slowly makes his way to the front. With tears streaming down his eyes, this man says, I was the man who owned that movie theater. And I thought it was such a failure. Thank you for sharing that with me. And it's a reminder. We sang about it earlier. Even when I don't see it, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working. Guys, your job and my job is not to change people's hearts or convince them of anything. It is to be faithful, to scatter the gospel seed, and then to let God produce the growth. But if we don't share, and if we don't invite, and we don't send out that seed, how do things grow? Our job is just to be God's instrument, to be faithful, and then trust, Lord, you provide and you bring the growth. So can I encourage us, right? Let's be faithful to that. Have your one that you're praying for. Be obedient when God gives you opportunities. It's why I'm asking people, go to Life Team, orienta life team Orientation and serve in LifePoint Kids. 
when you show up two times a month in a kid's life and you just invest in them and you pray for them, you have no idea what God is going to do over the long haul in that kid's life. We saw it a few weeks ago when one of our folks baptizing uh, one of our sixth graders, it was her LifePoint Kids leader who's been her LifePoint Kids leader since first grade. Five years later, getting to see some of the growth and some of the fruit in that person's life. Our job is to be faithful, consistent, courageous and obedient when God gives us the opportunity. God's job to bring the growth. Let me close with this. The story is about God who humbles a king that he and all might know him. But when you read on into the scriptures and you get to the gospels, you see this time 550, 560 years later, we're about to celebrate it at Christmas time, the moment where God humbled not a king, an earthly king, but God humbled himself in order that we might know him. Guys, the story of the gospel is not God saying, I'm gonna humble you that you might know. The story of the gospel is saying, I will humble me. Jesus, the king, humbling himself, coming down in the flesh in the form of a baby, going to the cross, humbling, being humiliated, taking on that humiliation that we, through his sacrifice, might know him. If you're here today and you don't know that and you don't know him, I would invite you today, turn from your sin. Yes, humble yourself by believing that Jesus first humbled himself, that you might know him. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. God, we, uh, we ask that you would help us. Some of us, Lord, uh, we are walking right now in pride. We look out over our lives and we see our accomplishments, Lord, and God, we need forgiveness. We have not given gratitude to where it is due. You are able to humble those who walk in pride. God, I thank you that you do that with a purpose, that when we walk through valleys of humbling, seasons of humbling, Lord, you are doing something in us. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you, who've never walked with you. God, may today, would you open the eyes of their heart today or in the days ahead where they see, Lord, they can humble themselves under your mighty hand because you first humbled yourself at the cross that you might know them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You are a good, good father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.